Sinners in the hands of an angry god. Did you read it, or are you just <laughs> making fun of the title? I haven't read it yet. Um, though I did read a funny paragraph in it. There's, like, bits in there that I just, like, pulled it open and was too, doing too many other things to actually read the story yet. But there were, like, paragraphs that made me laugh out of context, which felt unfair to Joyce. Joyce um, Carol Oates. The- uh, yeah, Joyce Carol Oates has a new story, folks, um, in The New Yorker. You know we love her on this program. Um, she's a tremendous content provider for us. Um, Save for, the dinosaurs. So we, <laughs> mostly for her tweets and her, you know, fairly toxic political beliefs. But um, the problem, Laura, is that she's actually kind of a good short story writer. Um, so I don't know. I don't want to like bash the story because there's like a decent chance it's like fine. <laughs> but. <laughs> I did laugh when I saw that she had a story come out called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. She makes me feel that way when we're all online Are you the together. angry God or are you the sinner? I sometimes wonder if Joyce is the angry God and we're all, li- <laughs> we're all living on her internet. I don't know. Um, Have you seen her keyboard, though? Oh, my God. That was atrocious. I can't talk about that anymore. Um, anyway. <clears throat> well, then. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Uh, we're back, folks. Um, it's been, someone like raised the point the other day that it had been a few weeks since we recorded, which actually... Like, Not true. Yeah, which actually caught me by surprise, despite it being technically accurate. We um, The last few weeks, we were we did that episode with Podside Picnic. Yeah, um, which, we, which is now our podcast. <laughs> Every uh, podcast we're guests on, we own now. Um that one was really good. You should go check that out um, with uh, Connor and Pete. They did a, they do a great job with that show, and we had a great time talking to them. We were so, charming on it, uh, truly. <laughs> um, and then we did a month of we did a month of Patreon content as well, so you can check all that out. So while this is our first time in a few weeks being on the flagship program, um, it, we've been we've been out there. We've been doing stuff. Um, we've we've been diversifying our assets. Yeah, we've been so. diversifying our bonds. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know how it is. It's um, but it's anyway, good to be back on this podcast yes. that I have to edit myself instead of like sending <laughs> to somebody else to do. Yeah. Um, so we better not make any mistakes because I'm not going to stop and start it. I've actually never made a mistake on this Ever. podcast, um, but we're going to get into it here in a minute. We're going to talk about a few little news items. We're going to talk about um, a bigger kind of structural agenting thing. We're going to do it to Lou and we're going to do all that. But before that, how about the basic rundown? Yeah. So we're at the beginning of October, a.k.a. spooky season, um, a.k.a. the season where I post a lot of selfies of me in witchy or skeleton related clothing items mm-hmm. that I can wear in a business casual setting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. we, we will have a bunch of special episodes for you this month. Always, as always, we will have our query show and our first pages show. Um, and we will uh, get an episode out about conferences because we're um, headed into sort of fall conference season. I know I'm going to be in one locally, Wordsmith, at the end of the month through our local Loft Literary Center. So I've got conferences on the brain. Um, And if you guys ask really nicely, a.k.a. just sign up for Patreon, we'll definitely (laughs) do a fourth. Um, So send us your suggestions. We keep the one episode free very much for... 
you all, you know, there are there are things that you want to hear about from from us as agents and as people who work in this business. And so we we leave it open to to make sure that we're giving you exactly what it is that you need. So send us suggestions or your queries or your first pages or anything else to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, so I don't know, where should we start today? I guess the first place is sort of with the most like newsy of the things that we are going to talk about today, and it's kind of checking in on a story that um, we've covered before, that we talked about at length a few episodes ago. We'll about, keep talking about and it. we will keep talking about it because it matters a lot. It's uh, Audible's captions feature. If you recall, um, Audible tried, uh, the keyword here is tried, they tried to roll out this feature where for their audiobooks, there would be like a text scroll. Computer-generated <laughs> text scrolling. And um, some publishers, you know, experts that they are astutely pointed out that, hey, that's text. Um, that's not an audio. You don't have the right for that. Yeah, and so it, it came into this, um, obviously, a big fight ensued about what, you know, you know, they thought it was a rights infringement correctly, so if you ask me. But, like, one point that we made last time through that I think is actually really crucial um, is that, Part of the reason that Amazon and Audible would do something as ridiculous as try to like do the, you know, suddenly just like take the text file, you know, rights for a given book like that without actually purchasing them is not because they think they're going to get away with it or not because it's like an honest mistake. It's because they're trying, they're probing, right? Like they're trying to see where they can gain some ground and they're hoping that someone makes a mistake or seeds some ground, you know, in some kind of way. And that's why. I think it's really important that we reach the point that we did, you know, I think this was very end of September. Obviously, this is one of those instances where because we were away for a few weeks, we weren't able to jump on this right as it happened. But, you know, the case went to court and it's in a, you know, it's in kind of a holding pattern now. They're going to keep the proceedings. But one thing that happened is, um, you know, the judge, it sounds like, really kind of came down hard on the on Amazon. You know, they basically said, this is this is ridiculous. Of course, this is copyright infringement. Of course, what you are describing is reading a text version of the book, you know? And um, I think that apart from just the decision, the reason I wanted to talk about this today is there's a distinction here. Apart from just ruling in the favor of the publishers, I think there's actually an important thing that needs to happen in addition to that, and that is making sure that while that's happening, publishers are bold about pointing out that not only is Amazon in the wrong on this specific issue, but that they were never trying to be right in the first place, that it was a bad faith attempt to try to gain ground that they did not deserve to have, that basically we need to not mince words about what is happening here. You know what I mean? Like, we can't, it's not enough just to like win a court case here and there because that'll happen, and Amazon is planning for that to happen. What needs to happen is as that's going on making sure that as a publishing community we're saying hey not only are we winning this legal victory we're making sure we understand the reason why you tried to fight it in the first place mm-hmm. we're trying to make sure that we understand you're not going to do something else similar to that because like again Amazon plays big numbers with this stuff or right? like they try all sorts of different stuff to, that they can see what they can get away with and it's you have to be willing to kind of see it as part of this larger project and not get caught up in any individual victories, you know? Yeah, and for those of you who are like the conspiracy theorist and like popcorn, you know, movie theater goers, yeah. um, note that our discussion previously about Margaret Atwood's The Testaments um, happened right after 
a bunch of publishers decided to sue Amazon for this thing. <laughs> and so if we're if we're really reading into it and we're really reading we're into doing, like the probing, oh my God. right? Um, if we're really reading into that, you know, it it really does reinforce your point, Eric. Even though so you're, you're it, doing the so we're putting our, you're putting your tinfoil hat on, yes. and, be, and basically being like, you know, they released those books because they were trying to get retribution. Yes, we could turn this into like. The info wars of publishing, yes. where we just like all Amazon the- <laughs> doesn't make mistakes. Amazon knows that one day shipping, one day yeah. prime shipping, actually isn't one day prime shipping, but they know you're going to pay for it anyway. See that? Like they know that. See, I I agree with you there. There's actually, I do think is an interesting idea though that part of the problem here is that Amazon has become so vast, and this is kind of retreading some ground that we covered last time we talked about the Atwood thing, but. Um, it's also possible that it's just this giant colossus with no one at the wheel, you know? Um, but that's less interesting and less fun than talking about, um, you know, grand conspiracies, which, you yep. know, we've got a radio show to fill, folks. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. Anyway, um, the hearing that Eric was talking about was just a hearing to manage a um, attempted injunction for this program. Um, they will still be going to, like, full real court for the actual issue and the actual lawsuits and to the um, and to their credit to the publisher's credit they actually took issue with that they wanted the ruling right then and there, yeah, according they did. to this publisher's weekly article and you can say here um you know like here the you know the lawyer on the side of the publishers you know said apparently you know we beg you to rule on the motion and you know they said you know they can't just do a head fake the article reads here sendel said sendel's the lawyer Referring to Audible's still unannounced launch date, adding that not not ruling on the motion would give Audible a get out of jail free card. Um, and I, obviously, you know, I'm not in the courtroom. I don't know the specifics. I'm just going off this one article. But I think that that instinct is correct. That we need definitive rulings. We need aggressive rulings against this stuff. We can't leave wiggle room because they will find a way to exploit it. So, anyway, um, just something to keep an eye on. We will certainly keep an eye on it. When we have more to say, yeah. um, I will be completely bowled over if Amazon wins all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, again, the important thing just to reiterate, uh, with my tinfoil hat on and with it off, <laughs> is is the context there yeah. no, and I mean, what it stuff. has, yeah, and what it has to do with the larger industry. Sure. Um, related to things that aren't directly um, publishing, but have to do with context. We talked um, many months ago now about the paper shortages that were happening in America and how that would result in um, longer print times. It would result in more expensive books, which is something that we've seen. And that that shortage has lessened a little bit over the past few months, but it's still very much there. And it's still very much there. And we've kind of reached this, like, nexus of, of, you know, why why the supply and demand is so skewed for this particular item. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing also that happened this week that reminded me a lot of the paper shortage issue is um, the Trump administration announced um, that there would be a lot of extra tariffs, Uh specifically with the EU. Um, And one of the things mentioned, like, printed pages. And a bunch of people freaked out because they thought, like, books are going to, you know, coming from... England and Germany and all of that are going to be 25% more expensive. Sure. Turns out <laughs> that it only applies to not bound printed pages, which is really, really good. Yeah, for but us in this for, instance. For us yeah. in this instance. However, um, 
what it does is it really points to that side of publishing that you and I only really ever get glimpses of when we go to big trade shows, yeah. which is the the people who actually treat this like a business mm-hmm. and like a you know a multinational like gigantic industry who don't have any like artistic attachment to exactly. it exactly yeah. um so it's it's just one of the things and you know there's not there's not a really big you know news item here because turns out there aren't actually tariffs on books happening mm-hmm. but what that says is that they're very easily could be could and be. we might be headed yeah. in that direction particularly with the current administration and we've already been seeing to a lesser extent a lot of the issues that have arisen from this administration um yeah. and a lot of other like globalization and and a lot yeah. of other factors um but just all of that is to say um books are becoming more expensive they're becoming a very fraught item item yeah. and as we are headed into you know ideologically turbulent times we're already there but we're headed even further and deeper into it um that is something where i could very easily see again with the tinfoil hat i could very easily (laughs) see people targeting books (laughs) in a way that seems a little bit more pointed than it is now um it's yeah no i i think i agree with that i mean it's one of those things where like you're saying you know when you and i go to conferences the thing we always come away feeling like is most of publishing happens in a way that has nothing to do with us. Yes. And this feels like one of those things that doesn't really, like obviously agents have no, um, you know, we're talking tariffs and moving products and shipping and all that kind of stuff. Like that has nothing to do with our work, but our work could very easily be beholden to this sort of thing. Like, it is. you know, if prices go up, like the question is, all right, well, where, where do we squeeze money out of publishing when things mm-hmm. get short? The answer is always on our end. You're, right. You know what I mean? Like, it's not our problem. Books prob- are more expensive to print. Right. Don't pay the author right. as much. Exactly. It's not our problem until, or it's not something, it's not our issue until it becomes our problem. Right. Like, when it affects the artistic side of the landscape. And so, again, this, like everything else, worth keeping an eye on, I think. Um, yeah. So you mentioned Sports Illustrated in our in our planning. So we actually do plan the show, folks. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it sometimes, uh, <laughs> but we do. Um, no, I want. I did want to talk about Sports Illustrated for a second because we saw um, we saw the other day. I think it happened. It's either over the weekend or late last week. I don't remember when, but um, Sports Illustrated, which again I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that probably a lot of our listeners don't read Sports Illustrated. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I've literally never (laughs) read a Sports Um, Illustrated. But Sports Illustrated, for a long time, really up until, I mean, recently, it's been, like, it's a very vaunted magazine. It's a very, like, it's kind of a really well-respected sports magazine. A lot of great journalism, a lot of great features, a lot of... Sometimes they show butts. Sometimes, Laura, they show butts. Um, (laughs) But, like, it's, it's sort of this... Like any magazine that's been around a while, it's sort of this cultural institution, right? And what we saw happen the other day is they laid off 40% of their staff. 40%? I think. And they did it in what, by you know people's kind of accounts from the room, some pretty barbaric ways. And like, I wouldn't, you know, it's sort of one more thing. You know, we've talked before about things like Tin House closing. We've talked about Spiegel and Grau reshuffling. We've talked about um, all these different things you know, layoffs across the board all over the place. And I think the point that you and I have been making again and again and again is that you can't just reshuffle culture in the way that it gets built, right? Like when you, like there's something about continuity 
and letting people who are creatively talented be in a space and build cohesively on progress that a, that a place makes that makes institutions what we are. It's the reason we have, you know, we respect places like FSG or like Knopf or any other magazine or thing you really like. Part of the reason you, it appeals to you is because it's been allowed the time and space to kind of build itself over time, right? And Sports Illustrated, I think, was one of those places where that was really true. And, and what, there's the institutional support then right. for the, the writers specifically to spend more time on their articles, to do more research, to, to, to take more care with them. Where if you're in a freelance economy. Yeah. <laughs> well, just in that, and what yeah. we saw in, with Sports Illustrated, it actually really, um, like the basic thesis here is that if you're constantly reshuffling and you're constantly making everyone in publishing find a new job every year. And, and apply const- for a job. Right. Like, you are losing something in translation. You can't just move the pieces around and expect cultural, like, or I guess culture is probably, I'm probably using the word wrong, but, like, any of this, like, institutional credibility and, like, dare I say, prestige or, like, any sort of collective energy that comes out of a place, like, you are messing with that when you do stuff like this. And it's really tough to get it back. And we really kind of saw a pretty stark illustration of that with Sports Illustrated because they basically basically their plan was fire half the in, in-house staff and outsource it all to like contractors right probably the same people right. just applying for every <laughs> single job like, instead of just their position once and there was this thing that happened you know they you know um it was Saturday night there was you know Sports Illustrated ran one of its college football game recaps that they usually run and like people kind of glommed onto it because this piece written under the Sports Illustrated, you know, website name and everything was written at like a third grade level. It was just <laughs> awful. And it was just so jarring to see this just terribly written piece under this name that we all respected, you know? Yeah. And it's like, but that's what's happening, right? Like it's if you keep shuffling this stuff around and you keep taking these cultural institutions that matter to people, whatever it is. Again, I mean, I'm picking Sports Illustrated because it's something on my radar, but anything that you guys care about. Like, and you say, we're firing all the staff and we're just going to take the brand name that people have come to care about and are just going to slap it on some other entirely other kind of work. It's not going to work. And it's going to, we're really not grappling yet with what we're losing when we do that kind of stuff. And it makes me actually, like, of the many things happening in publishing that are kind of worth being sad about, like, this sort of thing is the one that really kind of bothers me the most because this is the thing that you can't get back mm-hmm. you know like this is i mean you can over time and you'll people talented people will get together and make new things because that's how it works but like it's it's hard to see things that matter just get destroyed by venture capital and people who don't think that writer or editor is a real job and thus we can just outsource it you know like that's and we're seeing it in in book publishing yeah. as well you yeah. know there are there are certain publishers that use freelancers to acquire their books and yeah, a bunch of people to edit their books. Well, production editors, right? Like production I mean, editors are totally. Freelance I've done a ton now. of it. I mean, I free I freelance edit all the time. I, I get hired by presses to copy edit and proofread and do all the things that used to be in house jobs. Like, it's crazy. I and meanwhile, mean, nobody is fact checking. <laughs> <and> <laughs> that is true. Every right? but nobody knows how to do yeah. that anymore. Nobody's yeah. paying for it. Right. And and you know we even see the 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 push to that through. Um, you know the 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 very um technologically focused companies that are like we're gonna use math 
to yep. to pick what what you know we're on Wattpad and the number of votes are the people that you know are the ones that get published or the ones who are using AI to to assess the marketplace and Anytime then commission you something right stuff, away. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we're really cheery right now. So let's talk about managing expectations. <laughs> I actually, believe it or not, Laura, I am feeling cheery um, because. Yeah, you've got like six Stroopwafels in your belly. There are a lot of Stroopwafels in my belly. But um, apart from that, even, um, we're talking about managing expectations. And that actually sounds. Worse much, than it is. That sounds much blander than I think it is. The reason I kind of thought of this as an issue today is because. Um, I was just doing a lot of thinking with clients, with you, with other writers, with about my own work too. Like, I mean, it was just, it. there's this common thread that's kind of running through a lot of the different things that I do right now about like trying to manage short-term views of careers and long-term views of careers. And the reason I think it's coming up right now for a lot of my writers um, is because we've got an election in 13 months, right? And on a, on the creative side, that means that if you're a politics writer, you know, the time is kind of now to sell, if you probably was a month ago, to try to sell a book and have it published before the election, right? And so apart from whether or not that's something that needs to happen, like if you're a politics writer, it's got to be out before 2020, like that sort of logic. The reason I think it's interesting is because that date has sort of become this moment where a lot of writers have come to take a look at their own work and they're saying, if something doesn't happen by then, then my career is over. It's done. I mean, we've lost. I missed it. Exactly. I've missed, like, you know, things just drop dead. That's it. You know, and I guess the conversation I've been trying to have with a lot of different people right now, a lot of people whose books, you know, I've sold for election season, a lot of stuff that isn't, you know, like, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different ways it's it's come at we were coming at it but the thing that i think i'm realizing more and more as part of your and my job is helping writers who are having a hard time seeing past the next 12 months right the next even the next 6 months being able to say um you know actually we can think a little bit longer term you are not in a rush we don't have to expect to publish by this date you know this is not the end of your career especially because most of these people are kind of young you know it's like or we, this book might not right, be the exactly book. like the point is like there's just been this really interesting like disconnect lately i think between this very alluring thinking of this hard deadline and it doesn't mm -hmm. in, you know in po people's writing spheres that don't have anything to do with politics um the election probably isn't the date it's probably something else but um, it's I need it's this, all it of yeah. the people that yeah. were in my writing group or that I came yes. up with Ooh, are getting are getting deals right now. That is a big or one. you know this book has been on sub and it hasn't sold and what does that mean for me? Yeah. And there's there's just so how do you so let me ask you this well, let, <laughs> yes. let's open it up. You experience this version of that conversation where yes. the writer's thinking short term, you're thinking your job is to have a longer view. Right. How do you manage that? What do you say? How do you deal with it in a way? that can help someone see the bigger picture of their own writing in their career. So I think I think there's really two elements mm -hmm. to this. The first is communicating in a way that's actually very affirming. <laughs> sure. That 
I don't necessarily expect this book to be the book or a big book. You know, I very much will see a first book or a second book or whatever as a as a building tool, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, as I always say in my author calls um, or my prospective author calls is that I am signing you because of this book, but I'm signing you. I'm yeah. not signing the book. Yeah. Um, and other major, and you know, other other agents may work a little bit differently on that. But for an agent that is focused on career building, like that is that's the choice. And so, in a lot of ways, I don't even like. I want you to earn out, but I don't necessarily want this book to go big and huge and like and 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 make you a household name because maybe you and I have spoken about all of the other things that you want to write and really really immense commercial success oftentimes is paired with being pigeonholed in a lot of ways isn't it weird just so real quick I'm because I'm picturing how writers are listening to you say that Mm -hmm. and they're saying Give me the commercial success and I'll figure it out <laughs> later. You know what I mean? But like you do see it sometimes where someone who and it's not that we're to be clear, it's not that we're rooting against commercial success, but it is our job to think past that and to make sure that like if your book takes off that you don't just become that. Right. You know, that you stay whatever course you had planned because oftentimes like you don't want to like a misery sort of situation where you yeah. kill off the character of this series <laughs> that you've been doing forever and then you end up with no feet. Yeah, that's bad. It's classic no feet situation. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think all of that is to say it really that that point is a smaller point that feeds into the bigger thing is that. I see every book or every publishing opportunity or every submission in an anthology or something as a stepping stone. So I had a call just a few weeks ago with an author who's working um, on her third book, right, with with me. Mm -hmm. And the question was we were trying to figure out how to how to kind of revise this book so that I could sell it. And the question was very much not okay, how do we think that this is going to be the most marketable? The question was, forgetting this book, Yeah. what kind of books do you want to write? Right. Because everything, you're always writing towards something. You're always expanding your brand. If you're yep. doing it right, um, you're, you're always... You're developing as an artist, too. You're developing as yeah. an artist. You're expanding your brand. You're creating, like... Of an ability to be variable, to write fiction and nonfiction, to write speculative and contemporary, to write commercial and literary. Like if if you are an author who seeks to do that, then mm-hmm. every book, or even if you're just you know an author who wants to write just a bunch of science fiction, but like every science fiction book is going to be a little bit different. So mm-hmm. the the point is to create a brand and to each to use each book as a building block to write towards the 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 platonic ideal of the book that's in your head and you may or may not never ever reach that I don't I mean I don't know I'm not a writer probably not but <laughs> you're always working towards that and so this book is not the book that's going to get you right there which is when I kind of talk about you know we're going to manage the expectations for commercial success right now not because we don't want it not that we wouldn't be thrilled if it happened right. but because this isn't the end point and I think that's the key right is right. if you are an author it's really easy to look at your book that you've given an entire year to or something. You've given blood, sweat, and tears, maybe multiple years, lots of money, and lots of time, and say, "Well, this is it. If this isn't it, I don't, I don't know what else I have in me." But 
as a as a as somebody who is meant to manage your career as an author not as somebody who writes right there is there's there's more right you want to keep you want to you want to build a career where you can keep going back to that well where you can keep enjoying it where you can obviously make money where you are more than whatever the latest project is exactly and like so in terms of like to loop it back toward like this idea of expectations Sometimes it can feel like you and I are basically telling a writer no. Right. Or we're telling them, like, no, 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 be less excited. Go less, get less emotionally invested <laughs> in this thing. You know, and that's not really the point. The point is simply, like, our job is to kind of see a bigger thing. Like, this happens, you know, I've had a few, um, you know, I have some novelists on my list who, you know, we they sent me a book. I signed them on that book because I thought it was really spectacular. We take it out. You know, we get some nibbles, but it doesn't quite sell in our first round. And one thing that happens when we finally decide, okay, well, maybe we're going to shelve this one for a little bit, is like shelving is does not mean throwing away. You know what I mean? Like I sold means, a book this year that was shelved exactly, for four years. Exactly. It means that we're going to set this over here for a second, that this book got you to this point. You made progress with this one. It might we're get gonna, you somewhere else. Exactly. Like it's this idea you – know, Writing is not this like linear march to you know stardom. You know what I mean? Like whatever and whatever stardom means to you. I, I mean, I guess I mean like success and however you define it. Like it's not just this. Like it's not very straightforward. You know, it often involves a lot of projects that don't necessarily bear fruit right away, but come back later. It involves mm-hmm. just kind of trying to be out there in a way where you don't quite know how it's going to go, but the results bear out in a way that you didn't expect and. I just like I was, um, you know, I have one. I mean, I have lots of writers on my, <laughs> my list, but <laughs> but one of them, you know, that I that I think about a lot. You know, we are, you know, we're pitching stuff for this person right now, and I had, you know, coffee with an editor who was interested in their stuff, and um, we were kind of talking about their career and everything, and again, I it had been months and months and months of being like locked in mm-hmm. on this on this person's career, right, and being like, all right, we got to get this book out now. We've got to do this, this, and that. And this editor I was talking to kind of looked at me. And, you know, editors always have a different stance on this stuff because they're a little more comfortable, right? Like, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean, though? They, they've got the salary job. You know, they've got other book. You know, they've got the list they are not paid on. Like, there's lots of material reasons why, like, an editor would feel a little less urgency than an agent or an right. author. But, like, he kind of turns to me and he says, well, what's the rush? <laughs> and... And, and he points and he starts, he gives me this rationale. He gives me his, how he has seen this person's career so far. And it was like, as he as he's kind of laying this out, I'm like, that makes a ton of sense. Turns That's, out I was it, panicked no, for no it's, reason. It's not even that I was panicked. It was that, that this urgent, and it's not that we're even going to become less urgent, but it's like, this person is is correct. That doesn't mean that we're gonna feel any better as we as we go about <laughs> doing all this stuff. But like, it, it, there is a certain amount of truth to the idea that like like if you, I don't know. I guess I, and I think about this a lot in terms of my own writing too, right? Because I'm someone who has um, not that again. Like I say this, you know, I sound very self serious when I talk about my. I'm not a professional writer. I'm someone who's in the trenches just like anybody else. But like, I spent like seven years on this book now that I've been working on and like as I near the finish line with it right now on this latest revision I'm like starting it's like starting to crystallize in my mind that maybe this isn't the book right you, know you even I mean? said that to me and that is 
on his face a demoralizing feeling <laughs> because it's like, man, I spent all this time on this thing. Seven. I mean, I wrote only this for how long? And then I think, yeah, but it got you to here. And maybe here is a position that is better than I think it is staring at it right now, you know? And maybe and it's not the it's, book right now. Maybe it, it yeah. is going to be the book in five years. So we'll see. I mean, but, like, the point is, like, it's always interesting to kind of apply this logic to yourself, to try to apply it to others, to have others apply it to you and your clients. And the idea, I think, and this is something, you know, I talk about with you know, other writers, like, writing, especially writing novels, like... It's not supposed to go fast, you know? It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be... Like, it's kind of this lonely search for yourself, you know? And that can mean... Like, that doesn't necessarily translate well into, like, very straightforward commercial packaging. And <laughs> I, I don't know. It's it's just I was thinking a lot, especially, you know, as... Um, like, I'll be very grateful when possibly, like, when I've... When my... Uh, when the calendar turns such that no book I pitch or sell has any possibility of happening before the election. You know if what? That makes sense. And like you I'm only, almost you done. Only, like <laughs> but here's the thing, Eric. Yeah. You represent political books. I do. So, so and there's, there's always, another. There's always another election. But that. So that actually makes the point for me. And this is something that just happened. <laughs> has just happened. It's like there's always going to be, and this is actually a very optimistic point I make to a lot of my political writing clients, where I say like, look, something else is going to happen. Like, there is going to be reason. Like, you are a good enough thinker and a good enough commentator, and the idea you're trying to get across in this book is strong enough that it is going to endure. Like, basically, I tell them to give their own work more credit. It's like, why do you think that your work is only relevant for the next twelve months? You know, like I think it could. I think it's more relevant. You know, afterward, I think it's going to have things people could learn from for years. You know, like it's. And because you're exactly right, and actually it's a very bleak thing, you know, that we just had as kind of a conversation with this, um, and this actually ended up being a sale, but, um, you know, the the editor and their kind of editorial board, you know, they were thinking of acquiring a project, and they eventually did, but they said, well, is this an election book, or, and then they, you could see they kind of pivoted toward, well, what if we publish it after, and they said, or is this like a recession book? <laughs> oh, God. And it was... Obviously, incredibly bleak to hear someone say aloud that there are things coming after the election and they probably aren't very good. But, like, the point from a purely publishing perspective is that other stuff is going to happen, right? Like, and for and yeah. for those that are writing, writing fiction, the big thing in my realm is, well vampires are coming back yeah like yeah. they were gone totally. they you had totally. to you were everybody was rush 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 rushing to get the vampires and the werewolves and the whatever um and then they went away and everybody's like oh shit i missed it and then dun dun dun, dun people are all of a sudden acquiring vampire books. stuff comes around stuff comes right? around because everything is a pendulum and there is nothing new under the sun and so <laughs> all of that is to say and we've said this before and i will continue to say yeah. it because yeah. it is deeply important and yeah. it is actually a mantra that eric and i repeat to ourselves when we're alone together or by ourselves you have more time than you, you think you absolutely do and like one thing i know that you and i have tried to make a very like intentional and non-instinctual practice out of now that we've kind of started this new agency, you know, we've got kind of a chance to re-envision things how we want. Like we're trying to see all of our clients as 
well, what what's you know, let's take stock of everything that they have, not just the book we're currently pitching. What else do they have? What else yep. are they doing? How can we take a more cohesive look at everything they've got going on and figure out kind of a more full-bodied picture, right? And that's really like I. I bring it up not because to like applaud us. I think it's the right thing to do, but it's because it's not something that you and I are used to thinking, or anyone really. Like we're everyone is just kind of our right, next thing, next you project. You just want to focus up? on the like, on the Reese's pieces right in front of you. The Belgian boys Stroop waffle right closest in front of you. to my belly. Yes, <laughs> it's no. I mean, <laughs> um, we're not joking. Like there are a lot of Stroop waffles on this table. Oh man. They're, t- they're covered in chocolate. They're delicious. They are covered in chocolate. <laughs> folks, they are delicious. Yeah. So to round out this conversation, yeah. um, I want you just to reiterate, to take away from this, an agent managing or an editor managing your expectations is not because they don't believe in it. It's because they're looking at something from a point of view that you yourself might not have and that is a valuable piece of information for you to receive. And also... You have more time and there is nothing we can say or do that will ever relieve the amount of urgency that anybody is feeling in this business. Mm -hmm. But all of that is to say, if you miss it, just wait longer. It'll it'll be fine. Like, it'll come back around. Or just keep working. Or just keep working. Like, just stick to what you're doing this because, and I realize, like, not all of our listeners are, like, one thing that's kind of occurred to me halfway through this episode is, like, not all of our listeners are, are writers. You're like, we're not necessarily talking only to writers. We're talking about anyone in publishing, you know, anyone interested in this stuff. Like, it's fine at any given moment to take a broader view of an artist's life and career, you know. And it's often healthy, especially if it's yours. And, like, I just think that that – and this – I mean, I say it as though I, like, know this truth to be tr- – like, I tell, I have to tell myself this all the time. They're not self-evident. No, they really aren't. Um, I drive myself crazy with this kind of stuff um, as someone who really wants to be, you know, a published novelist. But it's – I don't know. I mean, I think that I – on the one hand, it's very freeing to think this way, that, you know, there is – you know, because and it is true that there is more time. You know, we do have all the time in the world to do these various things. And it's also it can feel like you're letting yourself off the hook. You know, it's like, oh, well, there's no urgency. Mm-hmm. And of course, there is urgency. You are trying to get things done. And it's like that specific like balance, that's tension between those two ideas, like is where all novels are written. You know what, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's <laughs> it's it. It's true. That's it right there. The Just diff- write like, another book. The long and short of it. Like, that's where... Our, all of our creative headspace should be. And I think that our most interesting work and most productive life, you know, in terms of our creative selves, that's where it comes from. So, Speaking of creative lives and working, uh, let's move on to our Tulum It May Concern. Please. And this one is a multi-parter, so we're going to pause and answer each part so people don't get bogged down. Tulum It May Concern. I recently parted ways with my agent and I'm considering possible career paths between self-publishing and traditional publishing in genre fiction. I have three questions about how these intersect. Hit me with it. Number one, my manuscript was submitted to about a dozen publishers, but we only have heard back from half of them. Is it worth requerying the manuscript in case another agent would want to submit it elsewhere? If so, when is a good time to mention the previous submission history? Or is that manuscript old news in query land? Okay, so I think that step one, if you haven't done this already, is to get the submission log. Yep. Um, from and this is a this should be a perfectly amicable thing to do, right? Like if you ever part ways with your agent, 
um, and they've pitched something for you, you are perfectly within your rights to ask, hey, I'd like a record of which editors have seen this book. You know, like you're allowed that information. And if they don't give you that information, that is a one, a really good sign that you don't want to work with them anymore anyway. But also, um, you know, that's worth that's like a big red flag. So like you are like you get that information. So get that step one. And step two, I would say that um, I guess it sort of depends how many, like I would, I mean, it depends how many people have looked at the book in terms of yeah. editors. So like is, step two is to look at that submission log. And if... Is six a lot for your genre is the question. Because certain certain genres have fewer editors. Yeah. Um, so genre fiction here... Um, yeah, so I'd here be, we go. A dozen publishers yeah. have heard back from half... Yeah. So that might be a lot or it might be a few. I don't know without knowing more information about what specific genre, pub- like what specific genre publication um, this falls into. So I would say it's maybe worth a try if you did like romance um, or mystery thriller, maybe, you know, depending on the submission list, a little bit less so for um science fiction fantasy but like i don't know it really depends on who the list is yeah Um, that's the thing so i actually my advice based on what you're saying in my own instinct is let the agent decide that like it's someone else's job to know the answer to that you know what i mean so so, in terms of who you or should you re-query with this particular book or should you do a different one um i have been so the most successful query that has come into my inbox from somebody in a position like this one mm-hmm. is I am an author, published or not, who recently parted ways with their agent. Um, I have a book that was submitted to 12 places. We heard back from six. And I would love to, you know, kind of take that one home, as it were. But I also have this other idea and just be really, really frank with it. You have... As long as you're not going in depth with the with two different books in a query, you have the the opportunity here to just be really forthright right up front and say, you know, this one, this idea is fresh. Maybe I'm not done with it, but this old one has been submitted and it's done. I'm looking for a partner that can help me with both. And, you know, depending on whether or not the first book is a little bit dead, like that'll that'll kind of depend. Right. But I in my experience, that's that's really the best way that it works is is just give them the options and give them more context. Sure. Okay. so number Number two. two. I would like to self-publish, but I'm interested in a hybrid career long term. I know a few authors who signed with agents to represent audio or other rights of their self-published books. Is there a common way to seek out an agent for that, or is it more common to approach an agent after getting interest about rights? Well, the first thing, I guess, like, the first thing I would make sure you do, and I actually, Laura, I think this person will be more interested in your answer than mine because this is kind of more up your alley, but, like, um... Make sure that when you query this, if you do self if you do self publish this book and then query it, make sure that you are making a clear delineation between asking for something other than a republishing of something you've already self published. Yep. Um, because that's that's an automatic no for me. I think is when yeah. someone says, "I've published this. You know, it's been out for a year on Amazon. Now I want a traditional publisher for it. It doesn't work like that. Like right. that. That usually. But to do- say I have published yeah. this and I want. To sell foreign, and this is my track record, right. and blah, blah, blah. Here's maybe why I think it could sell foreign. Right. You know, something like that. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I think, okay, so in terms of how to, I represent a lot of, particularly in romance, a lot of hybrid authors who self-publish some things and traditionally publish other things. And it, in my experience, it's worked best if the things that are self-published stay completely in their domain and the Mm -hmm. things that are traditionally published say completely in my domain. And the reason for that is not because like, I don't want my hands to touch those. Right. But the reason for that is because a lot of the self publishing tools today use all of the rights. (laughs) Yeah. So like a lot of, you know, Amazon or Ingram spark or ACX or whatever will distribute at least in the English language all over the world. And so the opportunity there, the return on investment, unless we have significant sales in that area for like translation, which is more expensive than just publishing in English and other parts of the country of the world, mm-hmm. is a more expensive endeavor because you have to you have to translate it. And so I I seem to think that like my gut is to say, okay, listen, if you can get an agent either way, I'd say go for either way. But my gut is to say that it's going to be a little bit easier to find an agent who's only going to be able to help with your sub rights for your self-published works when you already have interest. Yep. I think, I, yep. I mean, it's always easier to, you know, get somebody to help you with your stuff when you've already done a lot of the hard work. <laughs> yeah. No, is a I way to put that it. That's kind of the situation, though. Um, so I, I think I agree with your sentiment there. All right, so let's go on to number three, and then I'll, I'll finish it out. Sure. One of my dream publishers works via proposals by agents to authors. Is there a way to try to find an agent to work with you on a proposal as opposed to querying the full manuscript? Could you query a proposal and be honest with the agent that you'd like to work with them on submitting proposals to that publisher? And then, you know, thank you for your guidance. I would love to see more discussion and transparency over what to do after you split with an agent and how to navigate some of the more complicated waters. All the best. Recently agentless. Okay, so my instinct on this question. So here they're saying that one publisher they really want to work with works on proposal only, Mm -hmm. um, which is convenient. But if I'm the agent, I'm not necessarily signing someone who has materials prepared for only one press. And if that's like... Like, if it would be one thing, and you tell me if this is the case, where every press in this genre was able to work off proposal, and as the agent, I could then pitch a full pitch list, mm-hmm. it's it's a different thing, I think, if I'm being asked, hey, I have materials that can feasibly are only ready to go one place because I don't have a full manuscript, I've only got a proposal. And it sounds like right now, the way you're phrasing it, you don't even have a proposal yet. You know what I mean? Like, it's um, here I'm a little more iffy. What do you think? Yeah, so I, this sounds a lot like what happens in in romance. Um, So in romance, when you're trying to sell a debut or a new new author to a new press, uh, typically you have to give them the whole kit and caboodle. You have to give them the whole book. And then once that author is more established, you're able to submit to a place based on a proposal. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and the proposal will include some sample chapters and that sort of thing. And that works because the author has already kind of demonstrated their sales potential and also their writing cred. And so it's it's really rare for a publisher or I should say an agent. It's rare for an agent to pick up an author in fiction, specifically fiction. Nonfiction is a different animal, but in in fiction based only on a proposal, because a lot of um, 
the the genres that work in proposal only or proposal first, I should say, are very trope driven and they're very focused on voice because it's so because it's so formulaic. And so to me, like if I'm looking at submitting a romance novel to a Harlequin series line or mm-hmm. something like that, you know, they have very specific specific expectations and want just a proposal. Right. Right. Um, but what I, I'm not going to sign somebody based on that because anybody can kind of put together a plot. For me, it's a, the big part of what makes a good romance novel is the quality of the writing. Well, it's so as an agent, it's true right? Across all fiction, like exactly. The reason it happens this way is because fiction is really hard to evaluate on spec. Right. You know, like, so I guess what I'm saying is get the agent on a full book and then work with the agent on proposal. Yes. And so a lot of the time yes. with my romance authors, they come up with idea and I say, "Great, work up a proposal. Don't like don't write the whole thing yet. We'll see if we can sell it this way. And if not, I'll have you write the rest of the thing and then we'll sell it that way." You know, it's a kind of one-two yep. punch situation. Sure. Um so that typically is is what I how I think that you should probably do that. Um, but I want to end last all here. of this, the last bit, just about more transparency over what to do when you split with an agent. We've already talked about getting your sub list. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about telling agents that you're querying anew, that yep. you've been represented and have amicably or not so amicably parted ways. Well, so that was going to be my big point. Yeah. Is like, it's almost, it's a little bit like dating. It is like dating. In, in the sense that, if an if a writer comes to me, and they're like, and they start proverbially bashing the ex, yeah, they're like, well, I parted ways with my agent because they didn't do this, this, this or that. You know, they didn't like. You know, they weren't doing this for me. Like, that kind of gets my hackles up a little bit. You know what I mean? Just because it feels like maybe they were like, it doesn't really sound like it's all that fun to work with you. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's um, you want to come off if, if something. Like, usually people who are in this situation, like, I would say most agent splits like this are pretty amicable. You're right. Like, difference in ideas. Maybe the book just wasn't working, you know. Maybe they didn't get like, the book. Yeah, Maybe that's they fine. didn't get what you were where you were headed. Maybe they were focused on the big deal right now instead of the long term or vice versa. All like, sorts of things. Totally fine. And, and all can, of that is amicable. Yes. And you can, you should say, you should say what it is. Like, usually if the truth is on your side, you should just say so in a professional manner. That's fine. If it was a situation where, let's just say for a second, this you doesn't sound like you. were represented by like Danielle Smith or something. Something like that, you know, that's easy to just kind of point out. But let's just say for a second, Laura, yes. that you, the author, behaved badly. Yep. That you were someone who, I don't, I don't even know what an example would be, but let's just say you have, you know, seen the light and you maybe feel as though the reason you split split ways with your past agent is that. You you didn't necessarily behave the way you wanted. You know, it was you weren't necessarily. I don't know. You see what I'm saying? Like, what if it's your fault? What if it's your fault? <laughs> like, what if you, you're the asshole? How, how do you phrase that? Like, how would you phrase that in a query letter? Because I think that you should be allowed to continue querying. Like, there's, you know, how would you deal with that? I I think that would that sort of nuanced conversation is not meant for a query letter. I think that's meant for a call. Yes. So in your query, I would say, you know, you've recently parted ways with your agent. Don't mention who your agent is. We'll talk about it in person. That's kind of true across the board. But I think mention that you parted ways. And then when you're on the call, you know, explain that you had, 
you know, first time writer jitters or you didn't make your your communication needs clear. And so you got resentful or, you know, you were being abused online and you responded in a in a way that was hurtful to somebody or you made a mistake or you know what I mean? Like you can you got to just just tell the truth. You know, yep. and the and the and the key there is not that we're necessarily looking for somebody who's been like perfect all the time, no, but we're no, looking no. for somebody who like going forward won't be an asshole. I mean, really, it's as simple as that. Like, I'm just looking for someone who I have a reasonable belief I'm going to have a good working relationship right. with. And so that's all you're trying to get across. It's not there's no like answer key to any of this stuff. And so like in terms of as you phrase it in this letter, navigating some of the more complicated waters like. I think Laura makes a great point here about saving the trickier bits for the call when you can talk through it as opposed to the email. Like, not everything needs to be in the query. Like, don't just dump your baggage in a And you also don't want to be giving it to a hundred different agents that you're querying. Like, you don't want to – because that kind of feels weird. Like, you know, I – anybody that values – discretion and privacy and and you know respect of these other colleagues because like even if we don't know or even particularly like another agent (laughs) you know there's there's kind of the idea that not that we need to keep things quiet but but that I I want the information when it's pertinent to me and not somebody who's just gonna like tell their version of events all over the place um this is a very extreme kind of area that we veered into but kind of just in general when you when you break up with your agent get your sub list Mm -hmm. when you when you're querying tell people ideally queried fresh idea less ideal but still okay is querying an idea that's been lightly subbed if it's been you know kind of subbed to the moon and back that baby is dead for at least a while Um, put that in a drawer write something else and i think the big thing is just like follow Everything else, you know, you came out of this situation, maybe not with the success or the deals that you wanted, and maybe you even feel like it put you back a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that it didn't because it taught you how to work with an agent. It taught you what you needed in an agent. And, you know, you you are now a veteran of this business in a way that somebody who is a debut is not. Um, or somebody who has not been agented ever is not. And so really reflect on that and use it. And just really like the big thing truly with finding an agent and working with an agent is just like be communicative and yep. transparent. Yep. We can't give you that we what we don't know that you need. We, you know, can't support and anticipate things that we don't know about. It's just a lot of that responsibility is on you. Mm-hmm. And so just acknowledge that and um yeah, and just like lean into it and it's going to be fine. Totally. No, I I think that I agree with just like if there's any one thing to take from it, it's yeah, just be honest and transparent like and just treat it like a human conversation and not it, You're not damaged yeah, goods. Exactly. Like, exactly. Like <laughs> you know, you're not you're not it, yeah. damaged goods. You're not. A lot of the time I will look upon a query that says I have been previously represented before, you know, I'm looking for a new agent. I will actually give that more of a benefit of the doubt because chances are, you know, if you've already been vetted by a colleague, I know that you're 
you're at least not in the bottom, right? <laughs> like I know that yeah. in terms of craft, in terms of quality, in terms of marketability, you're already high up there. So it's actually a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Not that all of you should just like break up with your agents and go find <laughs> new ones immediately. But I'm saying it, it's, sure. it's, it's not, I will never, ever, ever look at an author who has had one agent or two agents or three agents as as a as a bad bet right. a lot of the times totally. like you know one of my authors i'm her third agent and it's just because her career changed and the people didn't you know weren't working with her and i took that as an opportunity for for us to just like enter into a quality of a relationship that's better than what we could have had before and that's a good thing mm-hmm. so with that um good luck to all of you agented and unagented and recently unagented um remember to check into patreon for our special episodes send us your queries questions or first pages to us we're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you for a regular episode next week thanks thanks